Welcome to episode 200 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Sunday 16th of September 2018. Links can be found on the show's website at the-spokesmen.com. And I'm Carlton Reed of bikebiz.com, and in this extended episode, very extended episode, I'll be reminiscing with my co-host David Bernstein as we replay some audio from Down Through the Years, featuring show regulars, as well as guest appearances from Jackie Phelan, Aisha McGowan, Laura Laker, Phil Liggett, Ned Bolting, Bob Roll, Floyd Landers, Christian Prudholm, Jens Voigt, Gary Fisher, Joe Breeze, Charlie Kelly, Jonathan Mouse, Michael Colville-Anderson, and many more. Welcome to episode 200 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. And we have been broadcasting or narrowcasting, whichever way you, you like to, to mix up uh, how podcasts are brought out to you, uh, since August 2006. So that 200 episodes, uh, well, that equates to, well, I would say, 250 hours. That's a big back catalogue. And joining me on today's celebratory show, which is going to be a show of uh, the best of, it's going to be a compilation show, I have got the person who founded it and was on that first show because he founded it, and I was on that first show too, David Bernstein. Hi, David. Hey, Carlton. I, I also love just adding to our Carlton Reed glossary, just a different pronunciation. We would say celebratory. So, um, But it is. It is a celebration. I um I can't believe that it's been 12 years and 200 episodes and I know you looked back how many guests and 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 contributors have we had do you have a, can you put a number on that Yeah it's over 100 it wow. is uh it is I, I lost count when it got to about 110 so it's it's an enormous amount of people so we've had some regulars on Yeah and we'll get on to that in a minute and uh, we've had some one offs on we've had people who appeared and then went away again. And our very, very first show, which was me, you, David, and Larry from Crank, we have no idea where Larry from Crank has gone. So we are talking, <laughs> this is like, uh, this is the, the, the prehistoric era of podcasting. So David, tell me, why did you contact me, Larry? And you, I know you contacted a whole bunch of people back then, and I was maybe one of the ones to, dumb enough to, to respond. Why did you... Uh, set this up. What was your inspiration, yeah. and and what were you thinking back yeah. then in in August two thousand and six? <laughs> what was I thinking? Uh, we'll come back to that in a minute. You know what's funny, and what listeners may not realize um, is that you and I really didn't even we didn't know each other before the spokesman, did we? We we did not. No, right, right. That's, that's really quite strange, isn't it? We we and now we met lots of times in uh, trade shows because yeah. of the podcast, and then we've obviously met each other in different countries as well. And I've come to your house, and you've been to the UK. And we've met up here, so all of that has been because of the spokesman. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and our families have gotten to know each other, and that that is really cool. And that's sort of the magic of the internet, isn't it? So back to your question. So in somewhere in two thousand six, nobody knew what a podcast was, right? Um, you had to be. A total computer nerd, I think, to to know what a podcast was. Um, and I remember reading an article, I believe it was in the Los Angeles Times Magazine uh, um, one Sunday about podcasting. And of course, at that time, they were talking about Adam Curry and um, 
I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but in the States, Adam Curry is known as one of the original MTV VJs back from the 80s. And he, uh, it's, there's some dispute about this, but let's go with it this way. They called him the podfather. He really invented podcasting. In other words, taking an MP3 file, an audio file, and um, distributing it on the internet via RSS and packaging it such a way that that you could automatically download each episode because of RSS, the magic, if you will, of RSS. Now we probably think it's clunky. Anyway, I read this article and I came home uh, and I said to my wife, I'm going to start a podcast. And after I described what it was, she said, uh-huh, sure you are. But I did. I started a podcast, as you well know, called the Fredcast Cycling Podcast, which at one time was, without a doubt, um, the single most popular cycling-related podcast in the world. I mean, you know, mm. during the Tour de France, I'd get 80,000 some odd listeners. But when it first started in its infancy, and please, dear listener, don't go back and listen to those first episodes. But when it was in its infancy, I thought, okay, how can I promote this show? And at the time, one of the podcasts I was listening to was um, put out by a gentleman by the name of Leo Laporte. Again, I think a lot of American listeners know that name from Tech TV uh, and from the Tech Guy radio show and then from his Twit or This Week in Tech Network. And I was listening to Twit and what Twit was, was a bunch of people that were on the internet. They were bloggers, they were web developers, they were podcasters. And it was a round table. And in that round table, it was like they were cross-promoting each other. And I thought, this guy's brilliant. And I said, that's the way I'm going to promote the Fredcast. So to be honest, the spokesman started as a way for um, those of us that were on the show to promote those other things that we were doing. So for you, perhaps it was Bike Biz and some of your other um, um, uh, projects that you were working on at the time. And certainly for Larry, it was crank.com, C-R-A-N-K-K. It was his takeoff on dig.com, D-I-G-G. Um, and then of course we added Jeremy Vaught, who was doing the, oh goodness, beginner triathlon tri- podcast. Tri- yeah, triathlon podcast. Yeah. yeah. And then we added, um, Tim Grawl. Tim Grawl, who became a, a, a good friend. And I know you're still in contact with him and he's gone on to other things. And we added other people right along the way, but you and I have been here from day one all the yeah. way through till now. So I realized that was probably pretty long, but I'm sure that we've got some new listeners who are thinking, how did this thing get started? And that's, it was really a way to promote the things that we were doing. And now it's a, a very much a very strong, very, very popular standalone show all, all on its own. David, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Mm. Spokes men. Oh, don't do this. <laughs> no, I'm going to. You knew I was going to. Yeah, yeah. So wh- why spokesmen? Because we have had loads of women on sure. the show. And you know, none of them actually complain about I always feel kind of sheepish and mm-hmm. say, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, we should call this spokesfolk. It's now too long in the, the tooth to do that. Anyway, we do the show, we're co-hosting, we are men, so it, it can be called spokesmen. But back then, presumably, it could have been anybody could have come on the show. And, and within six episodes, we did. We had Donna who came on the show. So tell me what you were thinking about with the name. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 to Donna, um, Donna Tosi, I mean, she was one of one of our very early regulars, right? So, And she never complained um, about it being called The Spokesman. My thinking was this. Everybody, uh, whether it was the, 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 the spokesman for the local... Uh, sheriff or the spokesman for the president or those kinds of things. The, that, that was sort of the term um, uh, even 12 years ago. And I think that 
<laughs> we've come a long way since then. And I think today we we would probably come up with a different name. It was literally just obviously a play on on words of uh, a spokesperson who who speaks for um, others uh, and also just um, the spokes obviously from from the spokes of a bicycle wheel. So 200 shows is an enormous amount of, of shows, especially the continuity and, and and it's when you go back and you see all of the people who are really not even in the bike industry anymore, not not talking about bikes like Tim Grahl, who we mentioned there. He's into books. He does New, Ti- New York Times bestseller lists. Uh, that's that's his shtick now. He's got nothing to do with bikes at all. And Jeremy very successful. Vaught, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Jeremy Vaught, he went off to do uh, a 2010 Senator McCain's um, re-election bid. And I think he also may have worked on Mitt Romney's presidential campaign or some other presidential campaign as well. He's he's gone into politics and good for him, and he's been he's been quite successful. So there's been lots of people on the show. Uh, they record in, in odd places, mm-hmm. including the fact that well, maybe people realize this when they, they hear some dogs barking in the background. Um, we record this at home and we record this via, well, actually, we're recording via Zencaster now. However, we're jealous for the sake of argument. We record this via Skype. So we're not actually around. It's a virtual roundtable. It's not a real roundtable. Okay. So two things. One. Our listeners will know that Skype hasn't always been kind to us. <laughs> it's getting better. It is. Those early days, it was flaky. Yeah, and people would complain, and 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 I would really fret about it. And and a lot of you, the regulars on the show would say to me, you know, David, we're doing the best we can. You know, we're recording from home at eight o'clock in the morning, and our our wives and kids need to do things, and our dogs. So just just relax. And so I did. So that was Skype. We did though. Several times, well, more than several times, we had the opportunity to have an actual roundtable, didn't we? Whether it was- With video. Well, sometimes <laughs> so, with video, but remember- so I'm no longer in my pajamas. Right. <laughs> um, uh, but but even even getting together here in Park City for press camp, we had yeah. we recorded several shows around, okay, it was a rectangular table, but same thing. And and we had video at, at Interbike, and that was always a lot of fun. Now, the people who uh, will be coming on the show- there's going to be a whole bunch of people. Um, Chris Boardman is is coming on. Um, we're going to have the regulars who've been on. So we're going Jim Moss, Donna Tochi. We're going to have Rich Kelly. We're going to have uh, Rich Kelly's wife, Julie, who's been on the show. We're going to have a whole bunch of people on this show who I've I've pre-cut for for your your listening pleasure. Now those people, and as I said before, is like a hundred and ten. People, we can't um, have audio from every single one. We'd have like a 10 hour show if I did audio from every single one. So I've got to apologize that I can't include every guest that's been on. Um, I can't include snippets from every single talk we've had on, but just things like the technologies we've discussed. So we discuss things that. When we, you can hear it when we're talking about it, it's like oh, gravel bikes. What are gravel bikes? <laughs> and now these things are so embedded in the area, like they're, they're market leading things. But we had people on the show who were the, the innovators in, in gravel bikes. Uh, you remember uh, who were telling us? Do you remember when Tim Grawl was doing? I think it was Tim. He was doing the twenty nine er, the twenty nine inch podcast. Exactly, and he he was one of the innovators of, yeah. of that. We're talking about that space. Yeah, and now I mean. <laughs> Where are you going to find a 26-inch mountain bike? 
Yeah, completely. <laughs> exactly. So technology's moved on. We have moved on for sure. And it's really strange to listen back to those first few shows. And we do sound different. Mm. I think we are less sure of each other, less less confident perhaps in 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 how we're talking. So they're actually quite subdued. So you get Tim Jackson on, for instance, and he's quite, you know, small voice, quite monitored. And then in later episodes, <laughs> and I will I will play one of his rants, and it was a rant. It's a fantastic rant, but we seem to grow with the show as well. So I think I'm probably more um demonstrative uh on the radio uh you know with the, with my face for radio as tim used to say uh, uh because of the show because we we grew into the show and we got more um confident as the show went on so it is kind of cute to listen to those those very first times people like jim and donna and tim and rich appeared and just listen to how subdued we were as well because i am going to be playing david i'm going to be playing our first no don't do it <laughs> our first show where we start talking and you can just you can just hear the difference in 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 how we sound from from then to today it's it's actually quite cute i quite like it <laughs> okay i trust you <laughs> so david i will now start playing some of the clips from from way back when and 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 some from the middle of the the 2008 2009 2010 I'll do, I'll do a whole spread of clips from from the the 12 years uh we have been online and I will start with us I will start with uh us coming on for the very first time then I'll go into uh our regulars and and get them in and we will have Jeremy and we will have Tim uh, Graal uh, because even though we, we don't know where they are anymore, I think they were an absolutely vital part of the show because Tim Grahl and Jeremy Vaught, they were there um, for the first uh, seven or eight shows. And when before I said uh, Donna was show uh, six, I, I was wrong. That was Tim Jackson. Mm. So our, our one of our regular uh, guests came on at about show six. And that's roughly, so we had then had a couple more shows where, where Jeremy and uh, Tim Grahl were on. And then we just lost touch with them and they went off to their, their, their separate worlds. So first of all, I will play us, David, and then we'll get into the, the rest of the clips of cool. uh, today's celebratory show. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to most of these, but not this first one. So, okay, go ahead. I'll fast forward through it and then we can, we can move forward. <laughs> oh, and by the way, David, we're not going to have you doing an advert. Oh, wow. It, it's going to be... I actually interviewed... Uh, Ivan. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. So instead of you uh, waxing lyrical and saying how fantastic Jensen USA is, Ivan from Jensen USA. And it is, it's a really cute story, actually. So it's actually nice to... So I spoke to to, to Ivan and I'll uh, I'll have that as, as an interview in the show. So there is technically there is no uh, sponsor's message from you in this show. It's, it's going to be the sponsor um, himself or itself is going to cool. be... Uh, talking in the show. So, David, let's get to listen to me and you from that very, very first show in August 2006. Welcome to the first episode of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. 
I think it would be interesting for the listeners to know who who we are and how we got into cycling and, and how we got into commentating on it and podcasting and writing about it. So um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll go first. I got into cycling almost immediately after after college. Uh, when I got when I graduated from the university, I got a job working for a fairly large Japanese trading company that was uh, in the cycling business, working with uh, OEMs and parts suppliers, putting them together to get their their bikes built, whether that was in Japan, Taiwan, or China, or wherever. And we also owned a couple of brand names, uh, some some brand names that, that you would well know. From there, I started my own company where I was helping Asian manufacturers who made very excellent aftermarket products but had no idea how to market those products to American or European consumers. I was helping them create brands, um, again, brands that you would know. And one of the, probably one of, one of my famous success stories was a brand that didn't exist until I got involved, and that's Full Speed Ahead, FSA. I helped launch that brand, create the image, create the company. And it, I love seeing where it's gotten to today. It's fantastic. But then became a roadie about four or five years ago when somebody close to me was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And I decided that I would participate in what we have here in the States, the MS-150 rides. There's about 100 of them across the U.S. to raise money in the fight against MS. And have been a top fundraiser every year in that, thanks to generous friends and family. Carlton, tell me about Bike Biz and, and how you got involved and, and, and what your magazine's about and what your podcast is about. Sure. Well, Bike Biz, uh, as the name, I guess, suggests, is about the business of uh, cycling. So it's a, it's a British trade magazine that comes out um, every month, and it has a, a website which um, is much more international because websites are, and that's bikebiz.com. And uh, I started the magazine and the website about uh, four years ago, uh, having previously um, edited trade magazines um, for the past 20 years, in fact, I've been doing this. And uh, I sold uh, Bike Biz. It was actually called Bicycle Business at the time, but uh, the website was always bikebiz.com. And I sold both to a, a publishing company in December, and now I'm a wage slave again. For, for them, and I do a whole load of um, freelance journalism for newspapers, not on bikes, on, would you believe, and uh, on travel. And I got into cycling when I was 17, and in the UK, that's when you can um, legally start learning to drive. And I've always been very contrary. So whatever my friends are doing, or whatever uh, my, my peer group are doing, I'll kind of do the opposite. So I when everybody was talking about revving up and how to change gear and and how to start driving, I thought, this is the time when I'm going to take up cycling. And so I did, and I, I started touring. And uh, I spent two years abroad uh, cycling the, the in the Middle East and loved it just so much. Uh, when I came back to the UK and uh, went to university, I hooked up with a bike mag who happened to be in... in, in my hometown, and uh, tried to get a back issue in order to learn about some products, which I'd seen in the previous month's mag. And uh, they said, we've just sacked our editor. Would you like to do a bit of freelance journalism for us? And I said yes, and it, it went from there, which was 20-odd uh, years ago. Ha! Now, 32 years ago. 
Anyway, here's David introducing those who would go on to become show regulars, starting with Tim Jackson, who joined on show six in October of our first year. And finally, our new spokesman this week, Tim Jackson. Some of you may know him as the Mozzie guy. Tim, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for asking me to come play. Tell us about you, what you do for a living, and, and why people call you Mozzie guy. Well, I am the lucky son of a gun who gets to be the head of Mozzie Bicycles. So I am the brand manager of Mozzie Bicycles here in California. And, and how, I, how long have you been in the bike business, and, and how did you get involved with Mozzie to begin with? Uh, geez, bike business, uh, almost 25 years now. I started my first bike shop job when I was uh, ripe old age of 12. So been doing this for uh, longer than I care to remember, frankly. Thanks for bringing it up. And on show number nine, just before Christmas 2006, we met Donna. Good morning and happy holidays, everybody. Hey, great. Donna, so I have to say, before we get started, it was, you know, we got a lot of emails from, from our listeners saying it's great that, that you've got all these, these great voices on the show, um, these people who are total geeks about cycling, but they're all men. Let's get a woman on the show. So when I started looking around, your name was at the top of everybody's list. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do and, and why you're so perfect for this show? Well, I don't know if I'm perfect for the show, and I'm completely flattered that my, uh, my fellow spokesmen have uh, chosen me, but um, I think they may have chosen me for a little different reason, that maybe I am not the, the bike geek that they would be, and I, I say that with all affection, as Tim and Carlton know, um, but I am the marketing manager at Kryptonite which is, if anyone doesn't know, we are a lock manufacturer, actually the innovator of the bicycle U-lock. And um, before th I've been there about seven years, and before that I did some stints with um, some sports marketing and some diversity marketing. So I have a very, uh, if you will, diverse background. So um, maybe I'll bring a little different perspective into the, into the podcast. Donna brought some great perspectives to the show, especially on marketing and PR as did our next regular, who joined on our 22nd show in August 2007. Let's welcome Rich Kelly. Hey, Rich, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good morning. Uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do for Interbike, the industry's trade show here in the U.S. Uh, well, my title is marketing manager, and as the marketing manager, I'm responsible for... Um, any kind of sales support for the sales team, uh, marketing collateral, advertising. Um, uh, I do. I'm essentially responsible for bringing attendees to the show, making sure retailers show up to the show, working with the media and our PR firm, um, maintaining our websites, and um, also running the Interbike Times blog. Rich has since moved on from Interbike. In fact, he's had a number of jobs in the industry since then, as has Tim Jackson. Our next regular guest also expanded his resume since first appearing in November 2009 on show 46. Welcome, Neil Brown. Why, thank you. Long-time listener, first-time podcaster. Nicely <laughs> said. Wow. Say, hey, Neil, so, so I think a lot of people know you from Road Magazine. And they do. You have, you've now moved to, you're in Greenville now, right? I am in Greenville, South Carolina. And what is it that you're doing these days? 
I'm doing freelance work. Uh, I've got a couple different projects going, and I've always been a coach, cycling coach. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've started doing that again for Wenzel Coaching. I I didn't get much of an opportunity to do that while working for the magazine. It's pretty much a seven-day-a-week job, and and, uh, I'm enjoying life out here, to be honest with you. I'm looking outside, and it's sunny, low 60s, and not a cloud in the sky. So you're wondering why you're sitting at your computer. Well, I'm pounding espresso, and it's also it's very um, it's not pro to go out and ride before noon. I've learned that from hanging out here with in Hincapie Land. You don't ride yeah, really. Yeah. You sort of come from a line of cyclists. Tell us about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my father is actually Irish. My mom's British. Um, they live in England right now. My father was a professional cyclist, and that's how I got into the sport. Him telling me outlandish crazy stories of racing in Belgium or France or England someplace and uh, the shenanigans that went on and it just sounded uh, too good to be true. Our next regular has held down the same job for all the years he's been appearing on the Spokesman podcast and we first heard from attorney Jim Moss on show 55 in November 2010. I'm an attorney, and normally at this point I duck behind the podium. And I was going to say, people, people start... have now just hit stop on their iPods. Yes, <laughs> yes, throwing <laughs> things, whatever. Um, my practice is all in the area of running around outside. So my clients are all making bikes or leading bike tours or manufacturing bikes or putting bikes together. Uh, I defend. I help people not go to court or stay out of court. At the top of the show, David explained why he called the show The Spokes Men. But it's absolutely not a men-only show. Here to explain more is Donna on show 136, talking in May 2016. Donna was on the same show as bike designer and journalist Anna Schwinn. Joining Anna on that show was former Trek executive Chris Garrison. But we'll hear her audio from her first time on the show, which was number 134, also in 2016. I actually was just at um, a function for my company and we had to put up a trivia slide about all of us and ask a question. And mine was, who has been on the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast for 10 years? Mm-hmm. Off and on, admitted, off and on, but 10 years, yeah. We've been at this a long time, Carlton. It, it is a lot. For podcasts, that's like uh, Jurassic Park, isn't it? That's a long time. <laughs> I know, but it's awesome. Yeah, And it's great that we we have some more gals on here. I'm excited. And introducing for the very first time uh, on the show is Anna Schwinn. Hi there, Anna. Hi, Carlton. How's it going? (laughs) It's going good. Now, you've got a famous second name. So for the Brits who listen to this show and who maybe don't get Schwinn quite so much, that's (laughs) almost like being called Anna Rally in in a UK term. So so Schwinn is is a big deal in the US and you are part of that family. Uh, yeah. So my great, great grandfather started that company in the US and as somebody who's just come back from the UK on a trip, it is, it, there is a massive gap between the two communities. I was actually pretty, pretty, uh, surprised, mm. but yeah, it would be like being called Anna Raleigh. That's the closest association I've found. Mm. Um, so I, I'm a trained mechanical engineer. Um, since I've gotten out of college, I've worked for Zip, designing time trial cockpits. I worked for QBP brands, designing for a variety of brands there um, as an engineer. 
Uh, and then since then, I've been writing a lot for publications like Bike Rumor, Bicycle Times, uh, Cyclocross Magazine, and uh, a few others. I'm going to first of all bring a new guest on, and that's Chris Garrison. Kind of, I'd like to say you're from the UK, but that might not be totally true, Chris. So where are you from? What do you do? And why are we having you on the show? I am I am uh, legally allowed to be a citizen of this country now. Mm-hmm. It, Which country helps. is that? Um, yeah, the 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 UK. Um, I've I've lived here okay. for five years now, just under six years. It'll be six years in October. And uh, I I hail originally from the great state of New Jersey. And I would just like to say for the record that no one from New Jersey says Joyzy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Chris, um, did you come it's a real here? store spot. Did you come across here to, to work with Trek or were you doing something else before that? Uh, no, I, I lived here before. And that's when I was um, sort of freelancing for a single track magazine. Um, and then I actually got tracked down um, by somebody at Trek. I, I was Keith Bontrager's 24-hour race mechanic for a number of years, and through him, they managed to find me And as they were starting a, a new program for um, trying to get more women on bikes. And they so they, they tracked me down here, asked me if um, I would be interested in um, jumping into a Volkswagen Touareg with a trailer full of bikes and driving all over North America. So I said, sure. And yeah. so... I left here to go back to start working for Trek, um, and I was on the road for the first four years that I worked at Trek, and then and um, had had sort of thrown my name into the hat at the beginning to say if a position had ever opened up in the UK that um, I would really like to consider transferring over here, and so I did that five years ago, and uh, that that took me up until December, and, and in that role I was essentially doing all of the public facing. Um, stuff, media, PR, appearances, press releases, um, lectures for Trek in the UK. In 2011, we first heard from Nicole Formosa, now the editor of Bike Magazine, which is all about mountain bikes. But back then, she was a writer on Bicycle Retailer Trade Magazine. After Nicole, who appeared on Show 65 and has been on the show other times too, I introduced mountain bike legend Jackie Phelan, who appeared on Show 84, which aired in June 2012. And after Jackie, we meet Julie Kelly, who was on Show 117, a Sea Otter special from April 2015. Let's say hello to Nicole Formosa. Hey, welcome to The Spokesman, Nicole. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. It's great having you here. Now, we, we do this whenever we have somebody new on the show. Um, for those who are consumers among the audience, because I think the people in the industry certainly know Brain, for those among the consumers, let them know a little bit about Bicycle Retailer and a little bit about yourself. Um, so we cover all kinds of uh, business uh, business news behind the trade, and um, and it's quite interesting, actually. <laughs> um, and myself, I joined Bicycle Retailer about three and a half years ago, and, um, you know, just... Uh, sort of a recreational cyclist at the time and, and thought it would be interesting. I have a journalism background and um, came from newspaper and wanted to sort of meld the two and uh, have been happily writing and writing ever since. Uh, and now, uh, guys, I'm actually with uh, Jackie Phelan, who some of you will uh, remember, Fritz will remember this, I don't know if this ever appeared in America, but there was a famous Muddy Fox advert with uh, paw prints uh, up Jackie's naked back. Now, that was about the same time as uh, 
as this. Was that just before 87? That must have been 85, it was that? It was 85. I okay. heard about the Man v. Horse race in Newton, um, National Geographic magazine, so I wrote to Llanurthed Wells, comma, Wales, comma, Ingle, yeah. uh, England, and uh, I didn't realize that Wales and England were separate. And um, Gordon Green wrote back and said, yeah, well, of course you can come, as long as you get your ass over here on your own. So somehow I found uh, Drew Lawson, who gave me a ticket, and I brought uh, my Cunningham bike over, and we just slapped some Money Fox uh, stickers on it. And I began um, riding locally. I guess I pro- probably the first race was the Manby Horse. And um, I don't know. I know that this wasn't big news in England, but I managed to beat all the guys. They had. Uh, they were uh, in those days smokers, <laughs> and I just. Um, <clears throat> I didn't take smoker stops on rides. And the top rider, uh, I think his name was Matt Mills. We did a pre-ride about two days before. It was a 22-mile course over the fells and everything in beautiful part of Wales, Gwynedd, mm-hmm. I think. And um, when he was shifting and screwing up, he'd curse us up a storm. And I said, Matt, don't do that. You're telegraphing your frustration. And uh, he didn't really catch that, you know. But late, the next day, or two days later, whatever, um, when we were racing, it was just me and him, and I heard a... <laughs> Plunk, and god damn it blue streak you know and i just went see you later hi first time participant long time listener um, my name is julie kelly i work as a principal of my own freelance agency and i provide public relations copywriting project management and marketing support to various companies um, almost all of which are in the bike industry I am fortunate in the last year or so to have worked on uh, dealer tours for Bicycle Retailer and Industry News Magazine, uh, chief cat herder on those events. Um, I did a big big freelance project for People for Bikes, helping with a compilation of the industry directory, and I currently am helping do some research for them as well on the e-bike dealer uh, side as they're working to move some legislation ahead to help us all figure out what to do with e-bikes. Um, you know, there's there's quite a bit of uh, PR work that is is needed to help everyone understand about uh, the e-bike space and where we all fit into it. Um, this is my fifth sea otter. Um, I'm just the baby here compared to certain people who have just entered the room. So I'm going to pass the microphone back to Carlton. Well, now, I want to come back to you first because uh, far be it for you to... Uh, pass to, to our, our uh, honoured guest who's just popped in and he, he's ridden here which he's probably need to just to get away from all his fans but I'll introduce you in a minute and I won't say who I'm introducing but it's, uh, it's Gary Fisher uh, but Julie um, <laughs> uh, people have heard uh, a relation of yours on the show before now who, who might that relation be if we said your second name was Kelly? Well, I'm part of the Kelly family cycling dynasty. Richard Kelly is my uh, better half, who has been a, a frequent participant on, here on the podcast. And he's currently a project manager for the National Bike Dealers Association. And he is working on a huge project uh, to define and create a national mechanics certification program that bike shops can rely on to reliably train um, and, and you know have a point of differentiation over the internet for their service side of their business. Now, road racer Aisha McGowan has been on a bunch of podcasts recently, including her own new one, but she cut her teeth on the spokesman. She has been on a few times, but her first appearance was in May 2016 on show number 137. My name is Aisha McGowan, 
And I am on a mission to become the first African-American female professional road cyclist, if that's not a mouthful. Mm. Um, I currently live in El Sobrano, California. Huh? And we're cheering for you, by the way. Oh, you're cheering for me. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, (laughs) I currently live in El Sobrano, California, but uh, I started racing in Brooklyn Mm. and moved out here last summer. Um, And I'm just kind of going for it and... That's where I'm at right now, in the in the going for it phase <laughs> of this mission. In April last year, journalist Laura Laker came on to show 158 for the first of two appearances so far. I was going to write about sort of health and fitness as a journalist, and then shortly after my my journalism course, which was a sort of six month intensive postgraduate course, I um, ended up doing some volunteering for the London Cycling Campaign. And having always been interested in the environment and weirdly enough, sort of worrying about road safety as a child, because <laughs> um, we had many cats that have been run over over the years. I thought this was desperately unfair. Why was everyone driving everywhere? I remember writing this very long poem as a child about why, you know, why people were driving everywhere. It didn't make any mm-hmm. sense to me. <laughs> and um, yeah, so anyway, so I ended up at the London Cycling Campaign writing their newsletter every other week. And I just suddenly saw, um, having started cycling in university, uh, thanks to this friend of mine, I just suddenly saw cycling as the sort of solution to urban transport problems and congestion and pollution and having always felt very strongly that, you know, the car has its place, um, but, you know, we're just using it far too much. So, um, yeah, so I just got all after that, all I wanted to write about was cycling and just trying to encourage more people to realise the the benefits just in terms of, you know, the pure joy of cycling from A to B and and just seeing the city in a whole new way, really, just feeling like, I don't know, feeling like the city is yours, you end up sort of owning it in a way. And you really experience it in a way that people who have to rely on public transport or are sort of enclosed in a box don't get to do. And even in the rain, it's just such a joyous experience for me, being able to power yourself along and nip through the traffic. And, and yeah, it's so much freedom. And I thought, you know, more people need to experience this. At Eurobike in Germany, 2016... I spoke with Anna Luton. She was the new bicycle mayor of Amsterdam, and she appeared on show 144. And yes, it sounds like a hanger, because it was a hanger. Hi, I am Anna Luten, and I'm the first bicycle mayor of Amsterdam. What exactly does the bicycle mayor of Amsterdam do? Well, that's something we have to figure out, because I'm just starting, actually. Um, but now I'm building on uh, a program uh, for the mayor um, and I'm working on three different things. So uh, I will speak with the government, with Amsterdamers, people who live in the city, uh, with tourists, with uh, people that are coming out of the bicycle industry, architects, engineers, city planners, uh, and we will look for new solutions. Why does Amsterdam need such a post considering it's got such high cycling modal share anyway this is what people from outside Amsterdam think so why are you going to be in position well actually we have the luck that we have such a position and it's it is really good in Amsterdam Um, but still because it is so good we are um, 
Uh, we see actually different kind of... Um, I can't say that it is a problem, but for example, if you ride on your bike while it's raining outside, what do you do? How do you, how do you prepare yourself for that? And what can we do that people um, still want to go riding while it's rain, raining, for example? Or um, what to do while there's too much people on the bike during the day? And uh, there are coming more and more and more and more tourists for example how do they all uh, connect and go along with each other wow having too many cyclists is a great problem for a city to have we've discussed dutch cycling infrastructure many times on the spokesman and we'll include some of those snippets later in this show but first let's hear from some of the cycling celebs we've had on the show over the years hi i'm phil liggett and you're listening to the spokesman podcast For many people around the world, Phil is still the voice of cycling. But we don't actually hear his Tour de France commentary in the UK anymore. Instead, we listen to Ned Bolting on ITV. And Ned was on show 197, which aired this past August. I've just spent six weeks in France and um, I've ridden my bike on a semi-daily basis and encountered um, almost no hostility. I'm very used to that. um, and certainly in the media, um, cycling appears to be a much more, you know, appreciated activity and sport. And uh, I'm just scratching my head, Carl, as to how we, you know, how we how we go about breaking out of the bounds we're in. I and mean, I think my former colleague Chris Boardman is one of the kind of few shining examples of how to talk outside of the bubble. You know, and, and um, we need more people like him. I think gold medal track star Chris Boardman has also been on the show. Manchester's new walking and cycling commissioner appeared on show 173 in November last year. Here he is, talking about a visit to Copenhagen. Of all commutes to work and school are by bike. I think it's just over 50% of school journeys are are by bike. Unbelievable. And the result, as you might imagine, imagine three times less pollution uh, than we have in our capital. Obesity levels, uh, half... And happiness levels, I think, is something I'm really interested in. I'll touch on that in a minute. Happiness levels, uh, that country is consistently... The last time I looked, I think they're still number one, but they're consistently... Oh, we're 23rd, by the way. Uh, and the way they travel is often cited. So how is it so hard? It's 591 miles away. How is it so hard for that example to make it across the channel? It's worth pointing out that Chris is ditching the talk and walking the walk. He has resigned from his Tour de France commentary duties to devote more time to his Manchester active travel role. And talking about the Tour de France, and roles even, America has Bob role. And he was on an early show, episode 139, back in May 2009. I was pretty slow as a pro, but I've made up for it uh, with my vocal cords in the meantime. (laughs) (laughs) And and so so you know as a pro, I mean you were on some 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 fairly well known teams, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I was uh, I was on the Seven Eleven team, which was the first American team to do the tour. Um, we're the only team to win the Giro so far from the United States. So I'm hoping that Levi will add his name to that in a few days. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was on the Z team with Greg LeMond in '92 and uh, raced mountain bikes for uh, eight years as a pro also. Um, but uh, I was on Motorola also. So. 
Continuing the Tour de France flavour, and perhaps controversially, we also had Floyd Landis on the show, and that was on show 60 in February 2011, some five years after he was busted for the use of testosterone and getting his yellow jersey metaphorically ripped from his back. Those on the Skype call that day got to ask Floyd questions, starting with Donna. Hi, Floyd. Very nice to meet you. Donna Tosi. Um, what's next for you? This was your whole world. This was your whole life. And, you know, and all of these things have happened. What's next for Floyd? Uh, I, I was hoping you guys could help me with that. So I don't have any plans at all. <laughs> <laughs> spokesman. You could, could be, be a spokesman. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'd be happy to have you every two weeks. Spokesman for what? <laughs> We're for still this. figuring that out. <laughs> We talk yeah, about this. doping lots. <laughs> I'm a spokesman and cycling in general. Mm. I mean, I'd be happy to be a spokesman, but I, I don't know if that's a... I mean, yeah, just tell me what to say and I'll just repeat it. <laughs> Floyd, what we were talking about at the, at the top of the show, we, we're, we're talking about the, the Kimmage interview and how this extremely long transcript has gone viral on the web with, with people dipping into it and some people reading it and, 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 and getting the nuances of everything that, that's in there. Were you happy with that coming out? Is everything in there you find to come out into the public domain? Uh, well, over I guess over time I've just kind of gotten used to the fact that <laughs> either I'm going to say it the way I want it to be said or else people are going to assume something incorrect so I might as well just assume my life is transparent and free for everybody I mean I, it was a bit humiliating but on the other hand I don't really have another choice because either I correct it for the record or let people assume something other otherwise and yeah I understand what your question is I, I, didn't, I can't say that that would have been the way I wanted things to go, but the way it is now, I didn't have another choice really but to try to set, set the record straight. Mm. Now, on this show, we're very famous for being very, very nice to the UCI. We we <laughs> love the UCI on this show. Now, I assume you love the That's UCI. A lie, boy. <laughs> a lie. You love the UCI just as much as we love uh, the UCI. W- would that be correct? Yeah, no, they, you know, every now and then they'll send me nice emails. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I haven't heard from them lately, but I'm hoping they haven't forgotten about me. Maybe I'll send them an email tonight after I start drinking. Doping sucks, and we've discussed that to death on the show. But somebody who really hates what doping does to the sport of cycling is Tour de France director Christian Brudholm, and we had him on show 119 in June 2015. Bicycle, the bicycle is universal. You have bicycles, bikes everywhere, but you don't have uh, cycling competitions everywhere. So uh, tomorrow we hope to have competitions everywhere and people from any country, from every country in in, in the races in in the future, I hope so. So for me, there is no separation between uh, uh, the everyday bike and the champions. And we have to strengthen the links between the two. But people might say that a Formula One race car driver doesn't encourage people to go driving. So how do people in, in Lycra, how, how do they get people interested in cycling? 
cycling, the races are everywhere. You are in the streets, you are uh, on the roads. Uh, it's free. You just have to, 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 to come and wave or say hello. It's very different. It's not a circuit uh, with a two or three kilometer lap. It's 200 kilometers one day and the day after the same in another region. So it's very different for me. You know, uh, 10 years ago, when a city wanted the tour, and had a bid for the tour, it was because it's the greatest cycling race in the world, it was because um, it can showcase the, the, the landscapes, the regions, and it was because uh, it's, it's, uh, everybody's happy on the tour and the cycling races. You have only smiles on the, on the faces of the people. But now there is a, 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 a forced reason um, that's because it's part of their policies, policy of the mayors, to have less cars in, in, in the city center and more people walking or on their bikes. And all the mayors from foreign countries, from all the countries but France, say that. It's a little bit different in France. But yesterday I saw the mayor of Dusseldorf. He, he explained to me he, he, he wanted the tour because it's part of his policy. As it was the case in London in 2007, the mayor at that time, Ken Livingstone, told us uh, we want less and less people with their cars uh, in the city centre and uh, we have to develop cycle lanes, but also maybe Le Tour. And one year after Le Grand Depart in London in 2007, there were 10 more percent of people on their bikes in the city centre, so that's just an answer. From a Frenchman to a German, we had Jens Voigt on show 123 in October 2015. I asked him first about where he learned to speak English. Well, it started um, back in East Germany. We, um, after five years or four years school, going to fifth grade, we had to start to learn Russian because Russia was our friend and our protector from the evil world. That's at least how they told us. Um, and then after seven years school, we uh, also had English. Um, very few schools you could pick French 95% of schools had English so I started um, uh, to learn English at um, the age of 14 yeah then I went um, to sports school and uh, did high school of course we had more English so I had a little bit of, of knowledge about it um, and then I, um, you know, international peloton, you speak English to uh, some, some other riders from, from other nations. And in 97, I, or end of 96, I signed up with an Australian, half Australian, half Czech team from Czechoslovakia. Um, and then I spent a lot of time with Australians. So I picked up, I think back then, I actually picked up a little bit of an Australian accent almost. Um, uh, 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 and, and yeah, I just learning by doing from there on, just, you know, spending time with Chris Boardman as a teammate, uh, having more time with uh, Bobby Julik, uh, Jonathan Waters as a teammate, so you pick up their language, their accents, the way they put the words. So basically it's a long time of just practicing on the road. Okay. So where did Shut Up Legs? When, when, was, when was that first said and when, well, give them the background to Shut Up Legs. I believe it must have been in the Tour de France 2006 or 2007 um, where I have been in a breakaway like three, four, five days in a row and then a Danish uh, TV station asked me, so what do you do if your buddy just don't want to do the work anymore? 
And I think, I believe there it was the first time where I said, okay, then I just go shut up legs and you do as I tell you because the mind has to control the body and not the other way around. Um, and then the fans must have just liked it and then they cut everything out except the shut up legs and yeah, shut up legs was born and uh, now it's, I guess, it's my catchphrase. I mean, it's, it's, it's well, if I'm allowed to say that, it, it's pretty big. I mean, you see it at like a triathlon in Melbourne. You see it at a mountain bike race in Canada. You see it at Tour of California. Uh, at the Tour de France, people yell, shut up, legs. Um, even uh, my, my, my oldest son, he plays uh, lacrosse. And uh, his coach, uh, Jamie, is an American um, living in Berlin for the moment. And even he uses shut up, legs when the boys complain about uh, the running, the training. And um, so it, it's a totally different sport than cycling. You know, shut up, legs became something where... Okay, you just gotta push through it. You gotta keep working and you know push through the difficulties um, to come out on the on the other side or of the problem. Um, so yeah, I like it. Yes, we like it too, Jens. Now, from road cycling to mountain biking, we haven't had just any old mountain bikers on the show. We have had the original mountain bikers on the show. Gary Fisher's irrepressible laugh has been on the show quite a few times. And Joe Breeze has been on a couple of times too, including that time when he and fellow mountain bike pioneer Charlie Kelly visited me at home. So episode 164 in July 2017 was recorded in my family's kitchen. But before that, here's Gary Fisher from June 2012 and show 84. I'm actually in Villard de Lanz, which is in the Vercors region of France. And sitting beside me is uh, Gary Fisher, uh, who's looking very dapper as, as well, you're never looking dapper. I mean, this is like different for you, isn't it, Gary? A little bit different, but, um, you know, another great look, a lot of fun. And, you know, it's my way of saying to the world, I love you. Okay. <laughs> now, what are you doing here, Gary? Why, why are we in Villa de Lanz? Oh, it's because we're celebrating 25 years since uh, the first uh, European World Championships. And really face it, it's to see all our old friends and see how everyone's held up and how they're doing. It's, well, and it's quite impressive. Everybody looks I, great. I, I think so too. Everybody's kind of like hanging together. There's nobody who's like three times heavier than they were back then. So but we're keeping cycling, I guess. That's true. That's so this is true. Doing it, yeah? Yes, and I now, feel that where we're sitting in the in the, the, the town square, Villa de Lanz, and just uh, a wee way down there, there's a there's a, a big hand stitched poster, which I know you tweeted about. Yes, from yes. 1990 in Durango, Colorado. They've they've got that huge banner up there. Was that like one of the first like world championships where the UCI was involved? Because I saw the UCI was on there. That was indeed the very first UCI championships, and that banner has a story. Oh, okay. That is a handmade banner. It was very expensive, and it disappeared. Oh, really? Oh, yes. And uh, they've been wondering, folks, uh, especially Ed Zink in Durango, Colorado, the organizer of that event, is going to be very, uh, well, sort of pleased, but sort of, uh, well, on the warpath, shall we say, once he catches wind of where this is. <laughs> oh, so we don't think this was, like, lent officially? Oh, uh, no, it disappeared <laughs> from, uh, um, you know, it was hanging over a motorway there, and oh, it wow. disappeared. <laughs> okay. Gary mentioned Ed Zink there, and he'll be on this show in a few minutes. But first, here's mountain bike pioneers Joe Breeze and Charlie Kelly in my, uh, well... Kitchen. 
And the importance of repack was that it was uh, uh, the crucible. It became the, it, it really was the very crucible of mountain biking. And this was the repack was the magnet that drew all us crazy kids from around Mount Tamalpais together on a regular basis to share our passion for this new bicycle. And, and, and so many, there were 24 of these repack races, uh, mostly in the late 1970s. Uh, and it went, and essentially because the media found out about us, uh, it went beyond our own sphere of influence to infect others with the, with, with the mountain bike. It was only the, what, the fifth race that people were coming from across San Francisco Bay to come to Marin, and maybe on the 10th race, Owen Mulholland came out to do a story for Velo News magazine, which went out to the world, and, and in 1979, I forget what number race, but uh, Evening Magazine, a TV uh, show uh, from San Francisco, came out to cover, to do a segment uh, for that uh, Bay Area lifestyle show uh, on Repack, and it was one of the most popular segments they ever aired, and that went nationwide about a month later and I'm sure there were people who saw uh, this repack telecast and were saying hey we used to bomb down the Ozarks or wherever across the country on those old balloon tire bikes back in the 1930s and 1940s so what we were doing was nothing new it's just that we were doing it with uh, such an intensity and so much of it that it spread beyond our sphere of influence and that's why uh, Marin County uh, or and more Mount Tamalpais or even Repack is seen as the birthplace of mountain biking. One other factor I think that maybe didn't exist anywhere else where people might be taking their old bikes down hills is we also owned racing bikes and so we knew that you could look at the two bikes together and you see so much room for improvement uh, and maybe uh, if you didn't uh, if it wasn't competitive, maybe you wouldn't spend the money to do that, but it was competitive, and people were looking for uh, the edge, if you will, but also, on my part, I was just shattering these bikes right and left, and uh, and every time you had to rebuild your bike, it was just such a pain, and you start thinking, well, how much would it cost to have a frame built that would actually stand up to this kind of abuse? And uh, And ironically, the what shattered my bikes was not racing down repack but just using it for my town bike and being a, a big enough and strong enough cyclist that you would fatigue those old frames and it was already 40 years old and uh, maybe it already been damaged a few times but that was a problem that uh, I could just see and I'm sure all my friends could see that there is a lot of room for improvement and my friend Joe was the guy who improved it and your bike is in the Smithsonian. Yeah, uh, Breezer Number no. One uh, has been there for a, a few years now. It was the is considered the the first modern mountain bike. That is, it has a, a frame that I built uh, specifically for what we're doing out of uh, aircraft chromoly tubing, is what it was. Uh, and it was the first time that you had all brand new parts on a bike. Essentially, your first shiny new mountain bike. And where do you buy shiny new mountain bikes? Well, in bike shops, of course. We've had a number of bike shop owners on The Spokesman over the years, and here's some audio from four of them. First, on episode 189 from May, here's Ed Zink of Mountain Bike Specialists of Durango, Colorado. We had the good fortune to uh, be in the right place at the right time in the late 1980s 
when uh, mountain biking was growing into a national sport and an international sport. And we had a history of producing a bicycle event called the Iron Horse Bicycle Classic, where we race against a coal-fired, steam-driven train. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And we live in the mountains of Colorado, and this train goes up the river to a mining community called Silverton. And and so we would race on the highway on our bicycles and the train, of course, is on the railroad. And it's a, it's an has developed into an iconic event in the United States, about 4000 participants each year. But because we had the history of this iconic event, the Iron Horse Bicycle Classic, we were able to we had all the necessary logistical experience to produce bicycle events. And so we started producing mountain bike events at, you know, the community as a volunteer effort. And, and as this developed, we started hanging uh, jerseys and banners on the wall of people who came and won national championships and then later world championships uh, as a marketing tool to to show the significance of these events. Another bike shop that displays a world championships jersey is Dark Cycles of Sunderland in the north of England. Owner Peter Dark was on show number 84 from June 2012. And here's me setting the scene from a bar in France. I'm here in uh, Villard de Lens, and we can hear the soft French music in the background there. And the last time uh, I was here, I was with Peter Dark in 1987 for the first World Mountain Bike Championship. So, Peter, have you been back since 1987? I've never been back, but when I actually come back now, I suddenly realise what we actually came to. We came as the only team. We turned up as a bunch of people on holiday and we call ourselves the British team. With, with nice snazzy jerseys. We did. Yeah, look, I've um, got one on. At the end of the day, nobody else turned up like the British team. We weren't the best riders in the world, but we were the best dressed. It's part of my day job to interview bike shop folks. And sometimes I do that via Skype, like in episode 186 from April 2018 with Bike Biz Woman of the Year, Kerry Dipple, who founded her shop at the tender age of just 22. I don't get this whole male-female thing. It's just like we're all people at the end of the day. Um, I, can, I can see it's intimidating if you go into an environment where you don't know what you're talking about. I can completely relate to that. Um, but I don't necessarily see that gender needs that comes into it. Um, like we get loads of guys that come in and they're just like, I haven't got a clue how to fix a puncture. Mm. And you can tell they're embarrassed about it. Um, it's just make, just make them feel welcome. Don't try and belittle any anyone, really. Um, you can laugh about it afterwards when they realise what they should have done or what the mistake they've been making. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, we don't really cater hugely for women's, like, women-specific stuff. Um, I've never really tried to push it down that that route. Um, we've, done, we've done a little bit, but... It, yeah, it is a minefield, if I'm honest. I mean, it's a small market. It's a really small target market. Obviously, yes, it's growing, but you sort of how much can you dedicate to that? Mm. 
in order to make your business viable because at the end of the day it's like it comes down to what what makes business sense it's, it's great having something that looks great from the outside but if you've got product there that you can't sell mm-hmm. and that just sits there and doesn't generate any revenue then yeah it, ha- it has to go and if that's women's specific product unfortunately you have to be quite pragmatic about it and yeah and do what's best for the business doing what was best for their businesses is what happened with two of our first regulars they were on lots of early shows and then we never heard from them again Jeremy Vaught got into social media, politics that is, working on the election campaign of the late lamented John McCain. And Tim Grahl got out of bikes and in to books. We first heard from both Tim and Jeremy on our second show, and that aired in September 2006. Here's Jeremy first, describing his triathlon podcast. Triathlon Radio is uh, is a podcast about triathlon, and I focus more on beginner aspects of it since there's so many podcasts out there that with triathlon that focus on more of the the elite, and um, it seems to be uh, seems to be doing well. And my other podcast is beginnertriathlete.com podcast, which is for beginnertriathlete.com, which is a great forum that uh, if you're into triathlon, uh, is the place to be. Uh, Jeremy, I guess it goes without saying that you're a triathlete. I do what I can, yeah. <laughs> How long have you been doing that? I've been doing triathlons uh, about two years now. Very good. Excellent. Well, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Tim, tell us a little bit about your podcast and about the Crooked Cog Network. Uh, well, the Crooked Cog Network started a couple years ago with Blue Collar Mountain Biking, and we basically wanted a site to talk to mountain bikers that didn't have a lot of money but loved the sport. And then from there it grew into a commuter site and a site dedicated to two-niner bikes and that sort of thing. And then this summer uh, we added the Crooked Cog podcast where basically I'm using all the contacts I've made over the last couple of years to get some cool interviews and do some product reviews and some commentary and that sort of thing. So um, we're on our, we just launched our fourth episode and it's uh, doing pretty well. Excellent. Well, welcome. And, and real quick, because you, you mentioned it, and I was just reading about it in Bicycle Retailer Magazine, give us a, a, a brief overview of a 2.9er bike. Basically, a 2.9er bike is, well, you have your, your normal mountain bike has 26-inch wheels diameter. And the idea was um, there's all kinds of history to why that was picked, but basically it was picked because that was the easy thing to pick at the time when they first started mountain bikes. Well, um, the two niner bikes are the bikes with the set. They're basically the rim size is the same size as a road bike, and then you add on a big mountain bike wheel, and you're hitting about 29 inches. And so basically, you have all kinds of things you can do better on a on a two-niner as far as rolling over things because you have a lower angle of attack you can uh, maintain momentum better that sort of thing and uh, there's a huge niche growing with these Um, in fact uh, 2006 has had the biggest um, amount of bikes coming out and I can't wait to get to Interbike and see everything that's being released there but basically um, for most cross-country riding you're going to get a better ride on a two-niner and so that's kind of why they're becoming more and more popular because as more and more people ride them, they realize that it's a better all-around ride than a bike with uh, smaller wheels. 
Tim Grahl was talking there of the then niche market of 29ers. Now, regular listeners to The Spokesman will know that the very best place to buy 29ers or gravel bikes or any other kind of bike is, of course, my show sponsor, Jensen USA. And this is normally the part of the show where David talks about that sponsor. But for this episode, we're involving Jensen editorially. So here I am in conversation with Ivan Tacharina at Jensen USA. Yeah, Jensen USA is just a bunch of hobbyists, a bunch of cyclists, you know, uh, bikies, as, as you call them. Um, gear advisors, yeah, we, we have a gear advisor department, you know, some very knowledgeable um, customer service um, folk there. But um, at the end of the day, we're all advising our friends and family, you know, on growing the sport, the community, you know, what they should buy, um, how they should ride, where they should ride. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're a big a big cycling enthusiast of, of various, um, um, you know, levels of passion here. You know, you, everything from your full-on gearhead and chatting in forums all the time to and just your casual Sunday rider, you know. So we have everything in-house here. So, so, so where, are you, where are you based? We're based in sunny SoCal, uh, California. So uh, we are in Riverside, California specifically, um, about... 50 miles southeast of Los Angeles for some perspective. Good, good um, so yeah, riding, yeah. riding out here is great, you know, close to the mountains, close to the beach, lots of trails to hit road or gravel or mountains. So yeah, we have it all here. And why are you in that particular location? Um, kind of just, uh, the, the company was based, um, here in SoCal. Um, our, uh, Mike, our CEO and founder, started the company at 15 uh, out of his garage um, with support of, of his dad and and you know just his local riding community um, back in the day. So um, just never left SoCal. You know uh, we're always based here, um, founded and, and have stuck around here. So we have plans to to expand um, kind of our reach in various capacities. Um, but yeah, SoCal's our hub. Where does the Jensen come in? What what does Jensen mean? To to my understanding, the story goes that um, Mike had to file a trademark or or the business um, paperwork with a lawyer, and I think the lawyer misunderstood, misheard him over the phone on what he was going to call the company, and Jensen is what stuck. (laughs) Jensen USA is what it is. And how many people you got there, Ivan? We have a little over 100, and that includes everyone, so warehouse employees. Um, we have a physical brick-and-mortar shop about 20 miles from us. Um, we have about 15 employees there. Um, every department, you know, um, from from top down, from CEO down to directors, down to marketing and purchasing and fulfillment, just uh, the company as a whole, you know, we're... we're we're big in, in, in our space, but uh, we're small in, in terms of just size of organization so. you, across other industries. Yeah. Are you international completely? Are you, are you, you're selling everywhere, like every single place on the planet, there's somebody ordering Jensen USA. Yeah, most of our business is based in North America. So obviously Canada, the United States, and uh, Mexico into Latin America. Brazil's pretty big for us. Um, there's a big riding scene there. Um, but we do ship globally. Yeah, yeah, we can fulfill practically anywhere. Um, the limitations there that we do run into sometimes are just on import duties that mm-hmm. other countries slap onto to products coming in and down. So, so online only bike retailers they they get a lot of stick. They get a lot of, um, of criticism yeah. from 
brick and mortar traditional retailers so so how do you how can you answer that kind of criticism challenges for both brick and mortar um and online based companies even in various industries um are are pretty similar um customers you know they they still have the in our space um in bicycling specifically um customers are savvy you know they're researching all day long they're talking about product and and components and compatibility with their buddies um so we have a very savvy customer base and they know what they want they know what they're looking at um they know you know what prices are reasonable so so we we face a lot of the same challenges surprisingly that some brick and mortars will thanks to ivan there and now let's get back to our show 200 special We'll hear from some of the many bike advocates who have appeared on the show since it started in 2006. Here's Jonathan Mouse on show 15 from April 2007. David asked him about his then new site, bikeportland.org. It started actually as a, as a bike blog I used to do for the, for the Oregonians website. The Oregonians are a big daily newspaper here in Oregon. Um, and I started it on their website, on their blog, before I even knew what a blog was or had ever even done a blog. Um, started writing on the Oregonians' website. And a few months later, uh, with the help of Tim Grawl and his encouragement uh, to use WordPress and to branch out, I started bikeportland.org in its, in its current form, sort of. But in that last year and a half, it's, it's changed a lot and it's grown into um, really more of, a, like I said, a daily news site, uh, more of a, an official media source, if you will. Uh, as of almost going on a year, probably about nine months, I've been devoted to it uh, 100%. For a long time, I worked on it. A hundred. I worked on it full time with uh, while I was trying to also work on other things, um, and it uh, wasn't necessarily paying all the bills, so to speak. Um, but I figured if I didn't act like it was paying the bills and work on it full time, then it never would. So uh, I cover everything: breaking news to personalities. I do event reports. I've taken thousands and thousands and thousands of photos. I've got a huge photo archive. Uh, just about. Anything that happens on a bike in Portland or around Portland, and it's—I like to say—it's got the largest and most diverse and exciting and vibrant bike culture of any city in the world. And so I say that, and some people, you know, they bristle and they think, "Well, what about Amsterdam? What about these other European cities?" And, and my answer is always, "Well, they don't really have the same kind of culture in the sense of how it—it's flowering here, which includes art, music, uh, all these other things uh, that don't really happen." in some of these European cities because cycling is just sort of like breathing. The rock star of cycle advocacy has been on the show a couple of times. Here's Michael Colvanderson from show 119 in September 2016. My dad is Danish and my mother is English. And, um, and then I, I grew up in, uh, in, in, in Canada, in Calgary of all places, compared to what I do now, you know, from the oil capital of North America to the Danish cycling ambassador. It's kind of been a, a weird ride, you know. Copenhagen, innovation, technological innovation, creating the green wave for cyclists so you can just ride 20 kilometers per hour all the way into the city center. Um, and uh, also uh, what we've seen now is uh, gimmicks like holding the railings that cyclists can hold on to, all sorts of you know, the small things, but also the large things like the, like the green wave, creating bicycle superhighway network of 26 different superhighways for bikes leading to the city center. Um, 
this shows that they're putting you know their money where their mouth is. Um, the other thing that happened that really helped them squeak past Amsterdam is that they increased their modal share in one year from 36% to 45%, a 9% jump in modal share. We talk of Seville from 0.2 to 7% in four years, and that was an amazing you know, uh, story, um, still is. Copenhagen did a 9% jump, and we know why. Um, they basically decided to build 17 metro stations all at once and replace all the central heating pipes in the city. So like, they paralyzed the entire city for cars. And that's the core philosophy of Copenhagenized design company is that you know if you, you make cycling the fastest A to B or the, and public transport, people will do that. That's all we want as homo sapiens is to go fast from A to B. I call it A to Bism. Um, so they paralyzed the entire city for motorized traffic, and you know even the motorists, the last people to change their behavior, they sort of went, oh, for God's sakes, where's my bike? Boom. Michael was talking about innovations in Copenhagen. And that city has the amazing snake bridge for cyclists. I'm sure you've seen lots of photographs. But one of the most jaw-dropping pieces of cycle infrastructure you'll ever see is the Hovenring in the Netherlands. And on the same show as Michael, there was an interview with one of the designers of that bridge, Adrian Koch. Uh, it was built between 2011 and 2012, and we started the design process for it with a, a big project team, which luckily everybody was involved in, like advocates, stakeholders, disabled people. In 2007, we started the project. Eindhoven is known as a very innovative city in the Netherlands, and uh, in Eindhoven, the most uh, patents per person per year are registered. And they really wanted the bridge to be a landmark for this innovative character of the city. Um, so yeah, that's why they yeah, really wanted to, it to be something special to, to mark that. So wh why are the cyclists up in the air and the motorists on the ground? Why can't you put the motorists underground? Or the motorists up in the air, I should say, because it's easier with an engine to, to get up there. And, and the cyclists stay at ground level. So what was the reason for putting the cyclists in the air? Yeah, the, the reason was um, costs and ambience and uh, contextual aspects like a high uh, groundwater level. So for the high groundwater level, uh, uh, underpasses for cars and cyclists were not possible or very expensive. And underpasses for cyclists were not wished for because of uh, bad ambience also. And... Um, yeah, in the end, um, it was decided to try to find a solution in the bridge and to make the most comfortable ramps. We, uh, we lowered the intersection for one and a half meters. So we lowered the car traffic as much as possible uh, with the high water level so the cyclists don't have to uh, overcome uh, their big height. Adrian is more of an engineer than a cycling advocate, but for many academics, the line between studying cycling and advocating for it is a fine one as I discussed with Dr Rachel Aldred, who was on show 174 in December last year. It would be great to see more um, people speaking out from the bike industry, sort of saying that we need this better infrastructure, we need this better cycling environment, and it's you know primarily um, protected tracks on main roads, but also um, you know quiet, healthy neighbourhoods that people can walk and cycle through. So I think sort of... The, the, the industry speaking out for infrastructure could be very important. I mean, infrastructure is not the, not the only thing. I mean, there's other things. I've been um, pleased to see the interest taken by police services and local authorities in near misses and, you know, creating a more supportive um, context for cycling in that way. But infrastructure, I think, is, is so important. We all want to ride faster, right? Well, the academic expert on that is Professor Bert Blocken, and he was on show 194 in July. 
what we investigated is um, um, a peloton of 121 cyclists, quite tightly packed, and where every cyclist stays at his or her position. So they don't uh, move from one position to another. And they drive on a straight road, a uh, flat road, so no, um, um, no, no hills and no mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is um, yeah, no or very little crosswind. So it's a bit of an, an idealized situation. Mm. And then what we found is that uh, when you are a cyclist well embedded in the peloton, that means somewhat to the middle at the rear part, that your aerodynamic resistance is only 5 to 10% of um, the one of a cyclist that is cycling, uh, cycling alone. And that value is quite dramatically lower than what you find in, in the scientific literature and in, in many cycling books where they say it's like 50 to 70%. Other academics on the show have included Peter Norton and Melody Hoffman, both of the US, and who were on show 151 in March last year. Melody showed how riding a bike is an easy way for a coddled white person to feel what it's like to be a marginalised person of colour. But first, here's Peter discussing his study of early motordom's creation of the word jaywalking. It wasn't always a crime. It's it's a real invention and a very, I have to say, a really ingenious invention, part of a much more elaborate and much bigger, larger effort to redefine streets as places for cars. So jay was a Midwestern U.S. slang term for a rube, an idiot, uh, a country bumpkin, someone who doesn't know their way around the city. Uh, And at first it was applied to people driving cars in ways that were a nuisance to other drivers, people who were walking on the sidewalk in the way that was for uh, getting in the way of other pedestrians. So that you could find terms like Jay Driver even before the first instance of Jay Walker. And you find uh, uh, Jay Walker defined as uh, a pedestrian getting in the way of other pedestrians only in the middle of the Midwest, uh, that is around especially Kansas City. And you start to see this in the Kansas City newspapers in the first decade of the 20th century. Now, at some point, people who were struggling with that problem I mentioned before, which is how do we shift the blame from the driver to the pedestrian when a pedestrian gets hit, people in motordom who saw that this was their dilemma latched upon this word jaywalker, which was just starting to emerge, and they really propagated it because it served their purposes beautifully. One amazing thing about the bike is that it does give people a different experience of our world. And especially if you grow up in a more privileged position and then you get on a bike, yes, of course, like now all of a sudden you are the marginalized person in that space. And so that is giving people a sense of what it's like to be marginalized. But in our current situation, not only does that person get to get off their bike and become a non-marginalized person the minute they walk into the store or their home, But also, they're getting preferential treatment in a lot of cities anyways. So they can say, yes, I'm marginalized because this car is cutting me off and I feel like I'm an outsider on the street. But they can also be confident in knowing that for the most part, of course, I'm speaking generally that cities are very committed to keeping white middle class educated people around. And so they will always be prioritized with transit planning. Melody's book is called Bike Lanes Are White Lanes. And talking about books, we've had plenty of authors on the show, 
Like Chris and Melissa Bruntlett, who were on show 196 in August, discussing their new book, Building the Cycling City, the Dutch Blueprint for Urban Mobility. On show 160 in May 2017, we discussed bike retail with specialised Donny Perry. His book is called Leading Out Retail. And on show 179 in January this year, we heard from Christian Walmar, author of Driverless Cars on a Road to Nowhere. We didn't fall in love with the Netherlands because of the cycling, and that sounds kind of counterintuitive and silly, but um, really what keeps us going back there and what really pushed us to uh, write this book was um, by building cycling cities, the Dutch have inadvertently just built better cities um, that are quieter, that are more pleasant, that are f um, free for children to roam. Um, so whether you ride a bike or not is is kind of irrelevant by um, slowing down the cars by reducing the volume of cars by giving people options um, and creating more public pleasant public space um, we everybody wins in that scenario it's not just about uh, the quote-unquote cyclist or, or the people that want to ride bikes we went to a, a screening of the beautiful documentary why we cycle uh, mm -hmm. a few weeks ago and the mayor of Kelowna got up and kind of his immediate reaction to the film was well you know, in order to make that happen here, we'd have to change two things, and that's um, remove everything from the zoning code and create a free-for-all and then remove capitalism, <laughs> <laughs> yes. you know, basically overthrow the capitalist system. Um, <laughs> so there's obviously certain cultural things um, that that are, are barriers or at least perceived barriers, but um, we've been reflecting a lot on how Western Canadian cities seem to have been uh, embracing cycling a lot more in recent years. You've got your, well, Vancouver kind of led the way, but then Calgary and Edmonton and Winnipeg and Victoria followed suit. And they're not just building, you know, one or two cycle tracks. They're building out entire networks of, of cycle tracks. So um, maybe that speaks to the, the cultural difference between the Canadians and the Americans. Um, and uh, we're actually, you know, going to be doing a lot of um, press and uh, and speaking engagements in the U.S. over the next few weeks. So we're we're interested to see where the conversation takes us and, and what it is inherently perhaps about U.S. Uh, culture and 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 cities that makes them a little more hostile to these kinds of concepts and ideas. But I don't think they're necessarily um, held off. There's a you know a barrier between them because we did see cases of you know um, in Atlanta they're looking at how to combine bike and transit. And so these ideas are starting to permeate. Austin is putting in a cycling network for those smaller uh, under three mile trips. You know, Portland was for a time leading the way and hopefully with all these other cities starting to catch up, they'll, it'll be a nice little kick in the butt for them. So we are seeing these pockets of it happening even New York city building, you know, taking the mean streets of New York and starting to take back some of that space and give it to people, it's happening. Um, it's It might not be happening as fast as, say, here in Canada or even in the UK. But I think, you know, inherently, like, even when it comes to the cultural stuff we were just talking about, Americans still want to enjoy their cities and they still want places to spend time, spend money. Um, they don't inherently want their cities to be dominated by cars but I think you know there is you're absolutely right there is a little bit of that you know here we in Canada we do think a little more about helping each other whereas they're still they're still on that journey and hopefully they can in the next 
you know, four to six years start to correct themselves a bit. Um, but, you know, everyone we talk to there, they all, I mean, arguably, yes, they do sit left of center, but most of them still want those livable cities. And, you know, hopefully that our book can provide a little bit of inspiration for that and a little bit of uh, forward thinking that they can use even to make baby steps to get a little bit further along. My title at Specialized is Senior Manager of Retail Development. And what that means is uh, that I work with any kind of um, transformation project or uh, kind of future state projects of retail. So anything where we want to try to make something different or operate in a different way or um, explore and study and get insights about uh, rider journey or retail challenges. I'm, I'm addressing that whole umbrella of things. Are you going to retailers as well and giving them input into their stores? So specialized dealers, can they come to, to Donnie and say, what should I do here? Or is this for specialized only? Um, so the, at Specialized, we have, we, have a, we have a pretty bolstered education program. So Specialized Bicycle Components University or SBCU. And retailers for a long time have been coming to us to get uh, a sense of best practices or visionary ideas or statements and so on. So any of the work I do uh, will help kind of filter down into the SPCU program where they can come in and grab nuggets and best practices as we find out. The whole idea has been developed not because there's any great demand for driverless cars, but because uh, the technology companies uh, have uh, got all this footloose capital that they don't quite know what to do with. They have got too much money being developed because of their monopoly position. And the auto manufacturers are terrified uh, that they need the, the next uh, new thing and they don't want to, to miss out. So uh, together they have uh, developed this concept, this idea of driverless cars as being the future of transport in our cities. But I think it is deeply flawed. There is no great demand for it. Uh, and uh, I think technically, uh, I think it's much more difficult than they imagine. I think we can discuss this, but I think they're finding that out. This is an industry show. And here are two industry veterans we've had on the show, Rick Vosper and Jay Townley. Both have worked for multiple big name bike companies. Jay, in particular, is something of an icon because he's like 103 or something. Okay, he's not quite that old, but he's been in the industry since the early 1960s. But first, here's Rick Vosper. He's been on eight shows, starting with number 127 in January 2016. I started my career lifting boxes in the Specialized Warehouse in June of 1980. Mm -hmm. uh, since that time, I've, I've done other stuff. I was director of marketing at Specialized and Cervelo Bikes and a couple of other com companies. And I also have a little marketing and advertising uh, company, Rick Vosper Marketing Services, uh, which does work both in the cycling business and in high tech. If you go to my uh, Twitter feed, Carlton, you'll find I do every day a post called Old School Cyclist. Mm. Oh, I see that. Yeah. And, yeah. and in addition to uh, talking about you know crank arms and all kinds of other crazy stuff, I talk a little bit about racing. Mm. And what we need to do is put some perspective on this. This whole imbroglio between the UCI and ASO began at the end of 2004 when 
UCI attempted to co-opt the entire sport of bicycle racing by creating the original Pro Tour, now called the World Tour. Mm-hmm. They said, we, the USCI, are going to define who's a high-end racing team and who isn't. Prior to that, whatever teams there were out there went to whatever events they could get invited to. So this is the UCI's attempt, and has been for 16, almost going on 16 years now, to imp- to to enforce hegemony around the entire sport of what was really a free-form thing called bicycle racing. Mm. You like it, you don't like it, that's irrelevant. But these are the historical facts. And since 2005, when the season began, the UCI has been butting heads with ASO to see who's going to determine who actually controls power here. And here's Jay Townley, who first appeared on show 126 in December 2015. I started in the bike business in a bike shop in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, oh, by goodness, about 58 years ago at this point. Um, and I worked for some very smart people, and I've been very unfortunate in my career. Uh, I, I went from uh, Hazel Park Cycle Center, directly from a bike shop, to work for Ray Birch at the Schwinn Bicycle Company. At the, in that time, it was known as the Arnold Schwinn um, Company, Arnold, Schwinn. Um, and I worked for two generations of the Schwinn family, uh, and with some very interesting people, Ray Birch, uh, Al Fritz, Frank Berlando, um, and those are all stories unto themselves. And then in 1990, um, moved up to central Wisconsin at the behest of my very good wife. Um, and, um, and she being much smarter than I said, it was time to, uh, move on and got into the consulting and research business. And so to this day, uh, my stock and trade, along with uh, uh, Elliot Gluskin, um, is uh, looking at researching and analyzing, uh, in particular, the American bicycle business. And uh, for the last six years, we've done that from the perspective of the American consumer and writer. Because of my experience at Schwinn, where um, I worked both on international standards uh, for many years, and also uh, was uh, responsible for Schwinn's purchasing. Um, I, I'm very familiar with, with Europe and Asia um, and follow it closely. And in our client work, um, we've got contacts uh, with research firms um, in Asia and in particular Europe. When both Rick and Jay came on the show, we got comments welcoming their wisdom and their experience. And on that note, we love getting your wisdom and your experience. So we love getting your comments on the-spokesmen.com. Sometimes you agree with us, sometimes you don't. Take show 138, for instance. That was about a tragic incident in Kalamazoo where five cyclists were mown down and killed. Regular listeners will know that Tim Jackson has nearly been killed after being knocked from his bike. And he had some strong stuff to say on what some motorists believe is their God-given right to the road. People in the U.S. feel the same about their cars as they do about their damn guns. Mm. And I just, <laughs> I, I, I am, I'm just, I'm, I'm raging right now. Sorry. And it's probably because I've had two large cups of coffee and no food to mitigate the caffeine strength. But it's the, the insanity that exists about trying to restrict any access to being able to drive where the hell they want 
is so similar to, I want to carry a freaking bazooka and you can't take my second amendment rights away. Mm. People seem to feel the same way about their cars as they do about their guns. When New York city put in the protected bike lanes and took out parking spaces, the city nearly went up in flames because people were freaking out about having less parking. And I get it because it's congested. It's a big deal, but come on. I mean, it's the, I get screamed at all the time being in the bike lane and where I live, the part of town I live in, every time they try to talk about putting in more of that similar painted bike lane, not even a protected bike lane with an actual curb, the local businesses freak the heck out and say, no, you're going to take away more parking. Mm. Yeah. And it, it's it just it it pisses me off to no end because people who aren't in cars are expendable. Mm. We're just absolutely expendable. And, you know, I finding laws that are going to say if you kill a cyclist or a pedestrian, for that matter, with your car, it is the same as killing somebody with your gun. Responding to Tim's, uh, well, passion, we had comments from Bruce, Dan, Eric and not our David, who said that show 138 was, and I'm quoting, the most important episode of the Roundtable podcast ever. That other David added that Tim's analogy of people's attachment to cars being like their attachment to guns in the USA really did nail it. Bruce disagreed. I am sorry to say this last show was a bad idea, he wrote. I don't think, he added, that I would subscribe to a podcast that became a regular bitch session, or one that bemoans the carelessness of drivers and our car culture. Dan then respectfully disagreed with Bruce. He wrote, While I respect Bruce's comment, I really enjoyed this show. He added, Go Tim, loved the rant. Eric also enjoyed that episode of the show. He wrote, He was glad to hear the way the show was concluded, restating the positives of cycling and added that he was a casual rider who was striving to be more involved, but that the Kalamazoo incident almost made him hang up his bike. Listening to the show, he said, he was now encouraged to keep riding. We really appreciate getting your comments, so please keep them coming, folks. At the end of the David-hosted shows, our guests are asked to provide cycling tips. Rich Kelly has the honour of providing the show's most memorable tip, so, listen again to this snippet from show 113, which aired in February 2015. Uh, yeah, my, my tip is kind of uh, on the, the geeky techie side. And, you know, there's probably a, a percentage of your audience that would probably appreciate this, especially since we talked about Park Tool. I was able to go to uh, Shimano hosted some tech seminars at their headquarters uh, towards the end of last year where they flew mechanics from a variety of shops in. And one of the things that they brought up what I thought was fascinating after having worked on bikes for, you know, for decades now, if you've ever noticed when working on the, uh, on your Shimano equipped bike, if you ever tried to adjust your, the derailleur limit screws, and if you know what those are, this is, this is the audience that applies to, if you've ever noticed that your Phillips head screwdriver never fully seems to engage very well and mm. slips a lot, mm. I always ended up going back to the flathead cause they always had a flathead, you know, part on there. It turns out that that's actually not a Phillips head screw. That's actually JIS standard, which is Japanese industrial standard. And while it has the same basic, you know, cross or plus shaped head, it's got some slightly different angles and engagement. So 
Uh, it's not a tool that's easily found outside of Japan, but it is available. Um, I think I've seen them online uh, available. But if you, yeah, but if you really care about uh, you know working on your bike and having the proper tools. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if Park offers a, a JAS standard uh, screwdriver, but you can probably look and search for one because I know that's something that's you know that's that's frustrated me over. That. I never really gave it much thought, other than the yeah. fact that I wonder why they don't engage very well. It's because it's Japanese industrial standard or JIS. I, I thought you. it was just me being terrible and having a, a just a terrible bunch of tools, but I not because they're always they just they're such weak material the aluminium they make these screws out of you don't you don't need to get it wrong too many times and you've no longer got an adjustment screw so that's and a, i that's have to great it's tip. it's fascinating and and as with most things japanese the precision is unbelievable you put the jas screwdriver into that little tiny limit screw and you can lean the bike over sideways and to an extreme angle it'll stay engaged it's wow. really and that's going to do it. I, I, I have to say that uh, everybody owes some thanks to Carlton for, for the amount of time that he put into that. Carlton, that was really just amazing. It, it was a, a virtual, if you will, sorry for this, everybody, you're all gonna, going to groan, a ride down memory lane. But it was awesome. And um, it was fun to hear all of that. So thanks for doing that, Carlton. That was that was fantastic. Right. Yeah, it was great. Um, and of course, when we're talking about thanks, you all know what I'm going to say. I have to say thanks for listening and staying subscribed to the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. For show notes and links and other information about our show, please go to our website at www.the hyphen spokesmen.com. Now, one of the things that we always talk about is where we can be found. And I am on Twitter as Fredcast, but I, or maybe the Fredcast, but I rarely tweet. The best place to find me these days and sort of get my updates mostly about the recuperation from my shoulder surgery after a bad bike crash. Mm -hmm. Everybody, please keep the rubber side down. That's my tip for today. Um, is on Instagram, where I'm just simply Fredcast. So hopefully you will enjoy And lots it. of dogs. Lots, lots of, of dogs. dogs on um, and uh, my travels around the world and around North America for business. Um, so if you enjoy stuff like that, go ahead and subscribe. It's a lot of fun. And uh, Carlton, you're all over the social media interwebs. Where can we find you? Well, I'm... I would say, yeah, I am on Instagram, but it's only dogs, mm. only dogs on there. So Colton Reed at Colton Reed on Twitter is where you'll get most of my stuff. And of course, my day job, the daily reporting on, on bikebiz.com. Now, David, thank you ever so much for winding us up there, as in winding the show down. Uh, but you also have a, a famous sign-off. And I've since I've been hosting the show, I've changed that sign off so what's what's your sign off what do you say the spokesmen have spoken no that's not true what i really do is i say um that's going to do it for this episode of the spokesman cycling roundtable podcast we will be back in about a fortnight but between this show and the next the spokesmen have spoken so i always sign off with get out there and ride and then rifling through those archives mm -hmm. lo and behold early shows you don't say and the spokesman have spoken you actually say get out there and ride so I, i'm not being unique i'm not being un i'm just copying you david i've i i i'm staggered with myself <laughs> i think and and as you mentioned this i'm sort of casting my mind back 
I think that those of us that were on the show at that time, we had a whole conversation about this. And I think we all agreed that it was going to be the spokesman have spoken. And then ever since then, whenever you've hosted the show and you say, get out there and ride, I'm like, oh, where did he get that? Apparently you got it from me. It, it was you, the, all those early episodes. And I'm listening to these things. I, I fell off my chair. It's like, what, 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 how can you, I'm traveling back in time here. How can David be saying what I, so that's the outro. So we are now going to do an outro. We have not uh, tried to rehearse this. We're just going to do an outro. And I don't know how this is going to work. So after three, David, hmm. we'll do an outro. Are you ready? I'm ready. Absolutely. <laughs> One, two, three. The get spokesman has spoken. <laughs> See, that was that was Russian roulette. I did not know what we we're going to get there. Okay, so they, that's that's a double whammy. People are getting both at the same time. I think David, that is a perfect way to sign off on this 200th episode of the podcast which you founded and I joined way back in August 2006. 